Welcome to Amplify. We're the show that will help you take your message, whatever it may be, and get it out through social media, networking, and other marketing channels. Maybe even some that you've never thought of. Whether you're an organization, small or large business, or you just have the next positive message that's sure to go viral, you'll want to stay tuned this hour. Now, here's your host, Ken Rashawn. Welcome to Amplified. I'm so excited to have my co-host, Sharon Frame, on the call with me. And we are going to have a phenomenal show. We have a show that is actually a twist. It's uh, Sean McCullough invited me to have an interview with him to actually be a chapter in a book about the seven secrets of influence and success. And we'll be talking about that during the show. Sharon, how are you doing? I'm very well. I'm really excited about this opportunity to hear you on the other side of the microphone, young man. (laughs) <laughs> it's very wacky, isn't it? And I, I want to say something that when this show is over, I think I have a question for you in the show that we may spin the dial back at you. What do you think of that? Oh, wow. I'm, I'm nervous. I'm shaking in my boots. Ha. Huh. <laughs> well, we, we have to, to give a shout out to uh, Joyce who put this team together, Joyce White Nelson, and she brought Geetha and yourself. And then, of course, T. Allen Haynes is one of the people that uh, had me had me really not only get to know you as a person, but as a sister, as my sister. So I'm so excited that we're working together like family. Yeah, you are my brother from another mother. And I'm (laughs) excited about this interview because it shows the other side of you, you know, you answering the the pivotal questions and showing a part of your heart and into your soul. So it's going to be exciting to listen to this. Well, I know this is a long interview, so I want to actually give the time for that. But I, I want to say that uh, the power of a conversation sometimes can al- yield books. It can also yield a change in life. So uh, we're going to go ahead and roll that interview. And in the future, we're going to actually have people on the show where we have such powerful conversations. They, be- they become books and legacies. So, Sharon, thanks for joining me, and let's roll that interview. Welcome, everybody. My name is Sean McCullough with Young Eagle Entrepreneurs, and we are in our next value-packed interview session with a dear friend of mine, Ken Rushan out of Maryland, for the book, The Seven Secrets of Super Achievers, How to Position Yourself for Greatness and Goodness. And I'm going to share a little bit. I want to welcome welcome you to the call, Ken. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you, Sean. I'm glad to be awesome. here. It's an honor. Yes. Um, just to give you a better perspective and understanding of uh, Ken Rushan and uh, why should you listen to this guy? Like, well, what, is he, what has he done that is super extra special or why would he even be a super achiever? So I'm going to give a little bit of background about Ken and then we're going to dive in and, and uh, go through a bunch of uh, questions that uh, we hope that will touch you move you and inspire you to step into your goodness and greatness. So Ken is an international author and speaker. Uh, He's considered an expert in branding and social media viral marketing with events really all over the world. And he enjoys implementing and studying strategies that uh, uh, that leveraging like-minded and like-hearted audiences to create epic social proof campaigns for his clients. And he does this really all over the world. Ken is invited to some of the biggest international events and speaks on the biggest stages on how to collaborate and orchestrate the influence to cause social proof viral campaigns that not only benefit the host, the sponsors, the speakers, and everyone at the event. Now, this is really cool. Ken has authored over uh, 17 books on multiple topics, including children, linguistics, marketing, networking, and travel. His current book, which is one of my favorite, by the way, is is a book called Keep Smiling, Shift Happens, has caused the movement of celebrities and leaders to want to join helping remind the world positivity attracts positive power. Ken is considered a humanitarian and a a philanthropist for, uh, he does hundreds of events. His company uh, volunteers to support and market each year. His desire is inspiring living a purpose-driven life caused to create him, the, his company called the Umbrella Syndicate, which supports authors, leaders, and speakers. He's a specialist in creating social proof viral campaigns for some of the top events, leaders, nonprofits, and business organizations around the world. His ability to see the vision of a leader 
character and cause the perception of the vision to become a reality is one of the reasons he's included in so many amazing concepts, inventions, and projects. Now, one of the things that Ken really, really loves is traveling. And he's accomplished one of his bucket list of, of visiting over 100 countries, which is really, really cool. Ken's favorite place to travel is always back home to spend time with his family, his wife, and his son, Kenny. Kenny, he likes to say, is the light of his uh, life. So, Ken, I want to welcome you to the call, man, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think you and I have been friends for at least four or five years now. We met through uh, mutual other friends. Uh, uh, Rob and Cheryl Adams, they're the ones that originally got us connected. And Man, it's great to have you on the call, and I can't wait to go, go through some more stuff with you here. Yeah, good memory there. Um, it's, <clears throat> I really appreciate you doing that because I really feel it's important for an audience to hear the name dropping of who actually is the power of one who causes relationships to happen, who's a connector, and if they hadn't done that connection at that time, who knows when we would have known each other or how it would have uh, developed in the friendship it has. Yeah, which is really cool. Um, and that was actually, that's how I, the, the, Ken and I went to uh, an event together back in 2013, the early part of 2013, and we actually slept in the same hotel room together. And it was really, really cool. It was at an organization called CEO Space International. And uh, I got to really get to know Ken uh, much more on a personal level and to see how he uh, does what he does. And he's, He's super, super, uh, how do I say, a people person. <laughs> well, Sean, I, if I could take a minute just to acknowledge you for that because uh, the audience wouldn't know this story, and I don't even know if you know it uh, completely, but I had invested a, a pretty large sum of money into CEO space probably three years prior to meeting you, and I was uh, going for the world record of buying three memberships through CEO space and not utilizing them. And Cheryl and Rob introduced me to you, and you said, hey, I'm going to CEO space. And I thought to myself, when am I going to do this? And you caused me to make it really easy. You said, hey, why don't you come, and I'm looking for a roommate anyway, and let's experience CEO space. And that changed my life in so many ways. And so to acknowledge you, I did 12 CEO space forums after that, and the amount of relationships and growth and, and really a lot of the attributes you read in my bio are directly or indirectly related to that experience. So thank you very much, Sean. Absolutely, brother. Now, Ken, I'm going to be asking you a series of questions to really help the listeners and the readers of the book to gain a, a better understanding of your, your strengths, your hopes, your fears, the challenges that you had to overcome in order to get to where you are today. Now, the, the intention of the book in this interview uh, is to really pull out your story and the experiences that, that moved and touched you uh, to help another person along in their journey in a positive way, and I know you're all about that. So uh, with the questions that I'll ask you, I hope that they shed light on what is possible when you believe in yourself and the mission enough that you're on. Uh, and well, I firmly believe this. All things are possible and attainable as long as you stay the course and put a rock-solid game plan together a good team together, and are willing to execute and put the time in, the daily disciplines, the daily activities, in order to accomplish whatever your goal is. And I think Jim Rohn put it the best. He said this, uh, the bridge between goal and accomplishment is disciplined activity practiced daily over time. That from Jim Rohn. But, so what we want to do is um, uh, we, want, we want the reader and the listener to, to, to have a an in-depth, inside look behind Ken Rushan and to help them gain a better perspective of maybe some of the challenges or the issues that, that they're going to face along their journey to, for them to step into their divine calling and their divine purpose. So we firmly believe all dreams, desires, and ambitions and goals, they're all possible to accomplish as long as you're disciplined enough and you stay focused long enough and your why is strong enough. So to accomplish your goals and dreams, you must have a crystal clear defined action and activity plan executed daily over time. And as I said, the, you know, the Jim Rohn one, um, that really stuck with me. I don't know. I got that. I picked that one up about 18, 19 years ago when I first heard it. But I'm going to dive back. Let's dial this back, Ken, to your, uh, to your school years when you were going through 
uh, elementary, middle school, and high school. And the first question I want to ask you is, would you consider yourself, were you a good student, a bad student? What kind of student were you in school? That's a very debatable answer. I would say because I was uh, hyperactive and uh, probably un unmanageable as a student for most teachers that I didn't feel were engaging me, I probably was considered a not a great student. I, I think I was possibly average. I did the bare minimum to uh, to pass and not get in trouble at home. But uh, from the teachers that really learned uh, my learning style, and you know Einstein was considered a, a horrible student. I will just say that when you have a student that's hyperactive, they're typically bored and they have to be engaged at a higher level. And so I love learning, and I got that from my mom, my grandmother. And even my father, the, the the enjoyment of reading or the enjoyment of, of new ideas and and uh, how the world works, I was fascinated by it. So uh, those those are my two answers. I was I was better in paper probably and evaluations, but I was awesome when it came to uh, I I had a real thirst for learning, and I also related to teachers that pushed me. Okay, and you had mentioned a couple family members. Mm -hmm. Why? And why would you say did was it that you respected their their uh, them as a person that that you were willing to listen and you know uh, have them influence you and impact your heart and your mind and stuff like what was it about those people versus the school setting or the teachers that what was the distinction there? Well, they they fed me knowledge uh, through love or they fed me love through knowledge. And, and I say that both ways because they found out what I wanted to learn and they gave me books on it. For instance, my uncle Bob, he gave me a book when I was probably five years old on how to draw horses. And I ended up in going into college with a five-year focus on medical illustration with a focus on science and art. And I really do go back to that point, just like we were talking about Cheryl and uh, Rob Adams. What, it, what happens in life, if you connect the dots backwards, can be really awesome if you are able to acknowledge with gratitude and also pay it forward. So my uncle was one, and then another uncle when I was 18, which uh, is kind of hopping up a, a little bit there on your question, but he gave me a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, and I'm going to meet this man. I'm going to meet this man this weekend. I'm going Friday to meet him. He's 81 years old, and he's, he's influenced millions of people, but I do put it as probably one of the most important books an entrepreneur can read because it's about the entrepreneurial myth and why so many businesses go out of business and what you can do about it to prevent yourself from going out of business. Right, right. That is awesome, dude. Well, it's kind of, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the idea of this is typically, and I, and I won't dive into my experiences, but I've had a few what I like to call landmark experiences or moments in my life from different various teachers and uh, uh, authorities, if you will, in the, in the township that have impacted my you know, my journey, but if you can, can please share with us one of the most impactful experiences or memories that you can remember from that really was, you know, a landmark, a landmark experience in your life, whether it was in middle school, it changed the trajectory of your path and where you were going. Was it, was it in middle school? Was it uh, in high school? Was it college? Like, when was a, one or two of those landmark experiences that really, really had a major impact on your uh, trajectory and your path? Well, the first one and uh, is, is the biggie. It's fifth grade, I had a science teacher, and his name was Mr. Engel, and I never got an opportunity to thank him or never got an opportunity to tell him the impact that he had in my life, but <clears throat> he was an extremely tough teacher, and I didn't do that well in his class. And I almost feared him because he was so strict in the class, and not from a mean standpoint, just from a standpoint that his curriculum of fifth grade science, believe it or not, was uh, going to be taught at a level of almost high school. And so I fared with, I, I fought to get a C in the class, but the, what was so impactful about it wasn't how he treated me or how nice he was. It was that he was so committed to the topic of science that when I left that class, I actually didn't have a lot of self-esteem in the area of science. But when I got into sixth grade, science was a breeze. Seventh grade science, was, and I became, a, I had a love for science. I ended up going to college and studying biology, physics, and chemistry. And I and I, I point to that that teacher, and it's the weirdest story because it wasn't like I loved this guy. <laughs> he just he just gave me such a love for science, and I didn't <clears throat> I didn't know it because I was being trained 
to think in science terms at such a high level at fifth grade that I was just so far ahead of my classes that, from that point forward. And this was in Germany. This was uh, in uh, uh, my final year in Germany, fifth grade, and I came back to the States, and man, I was so far ahead in that, in that course. The other person was a, a person that uh, taught me to really uh, express myself creatively through art, and I ended up getting uh, winning two art scholarships or two art grants to go to college. And if it wasn't for him uh, embracing my love of of that book, drawing horses all the way up to sculpture and all these other things, I don't think I would have uh, had the the photography eye that I have. A lot of people say, "Man, you have an eye for photography," and I attribute it simply to art, an understanding of composition and light, and and then uh, the. The third person would be the, the person who got me involved in being competitive in sports, and and he he taught me a lot about pushing myself physically and also about balance. Uh, and he didn't do that with an intentional; he did it with uh, the mentorship of his team. That you can be fantastic at all all things if you put your mind to it. And I told my mom when I was young, I said, I don't think it's possible to be good at. Uh, more than two things. I, I just said, if you're great at sports, you're not great at academics. If you're great at academics, you're not great at sports. And, and Or if you're great at music, you're, it's going to pay. And there is a way to do it all. You just have to have balance in your life. And it's a constant, um, you know, it's either a constant struggle or it's a constant art. And, the, and I think the art is that you actually uh, find out what's important to you and you make sure you have time for those things so you're developing all at the same time. And you know as well as I do, Sean, that uh, the, the more you're, in balance, the more it's actually feeding off of each other and creating excellence in all of them. Absolutely. I'm actually, I kind of share with you earlier, uh, prior to the interview, um, I was going through, a, a, like, I don't have problems. I have challenges and issues. I've been designed to overcome challenges and issues. That's what, like, problems to me are things that, that you don't give over to God. Um, and one of my challenges, because I got so much energy and I got so much I want to get done, the uh, shutting off at night, like I got a boatload of energy, and I don't want to dilute from you know uh, the, the interview with you, but uh, uh, what you had shared, Ken, about those uh, couple different people and balance in sports and competitiveness, like that's what the marketplace is going to bring, you know, and uh, the the value that you bring to the marketplace, because you know the marketplace will pay you whatever value you bring to it. And I, and I love this. And again, a lot of my stuff I, I've studied and really know Jim Rohn really, really well. And if, you do, if you've never heard of Jim Rohn, go to YouTube and watch a couple of his videos. I actually call him Pop-Pop Rohn. Um, I, I've unofficially adopted him as my Pop-Pop. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you had mentioned, Ken, I had no idea. You actually, in your elementary and middle school years, you studied abroad. Yes. I spent... Uh uh, when I moved to the States at age 12, I had only been in the States roughly two and a half years of my life at that point. I had been in 15 places, uh, 13 places at that point, and then 15 by the time I moved to my second place in the United States. I and got that's it. Now, was, 18. was your, was it your father or originally, <laughs> are you from, um, your family from America? Was, what, did your, was your father in the military or what, what took you, you know? My dad was the military. Uh, my mom was a full-time mom, and but I was born in Rhode Island, Warwick, Rhode Island. Uh, and within months of being born, I was whisked off to to France from my dad's first duty assignment. And wow. uh, you know, it's really interesting about parenting because it, it shapes you for who you are. And I I won't say that I got any of my entrepreneurial spirit from my dad or mom because they they didn't have that at all, but they did. Uh, believe in character development. They did believe in being honest. And my dad was, uh, he was an officer and he taught his sons to be young officers. It was, there's no doubt about it. We were a reflection on him and he made sure we knew that. <laughs> got it. Got it. Awesome. Um, now, Ken, there, you know, as you were developing and growing through your journey and kind of choosing your path and what 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 uh, inspired you or what you really enjoyed. And entrepreneurs, they're, they're very, how do I say it, they're, they're usually not, they don't fit too well inside a box uh, or the no, normal cultural, you know, uh, parameters of corporate or uh, schooling structure. Like they, 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 they become, um, uh, how do I say it, at least in my experience, what I have found, most of them become frustrated or, 
you know, they, they just don't fit real good in the box is the best way I can put it. But when did you realize, Ken, like, when was your first, when did you catch the entrepreneurial bug? When did you realize that you were going to be an entrepreneur? How did that happen? Well, I was, I was the kid that saw um, money being made and that you could use money to get what you wanted in life. And I'm talking about uh, selling lollipops or competing to sell the candy bars and, and just be rewarded for it. And even, those, even if those rewards weren't money, I saw that the power of selling and creating um, trade was very important. I, I, I would like to take a, a step backwards for a second because there was one lesson that would relate to this answer, and it was that when I was, in, uh, when I was 12, I did start my first sport, and it was baseball. And what a bad choice it was for me. I just thought it was a cool sport. And so I jumped in. And talk about a coach that really didn't find out where my skill sets were. He he put me in right field, which was probably a good uh, a good choice uh, in the end. But uh, he didn't have a catcher, and so he said, "You know what? Let's put Kenny uh, at catcher position." And he was giving me he was giving me uh, throws from the he was the pitcher. He was giving me throws that I swear were 90 miles an hour. I'm sure they weren't, but that's what it felt like in my hand. And either sure. my glove wasn't great, or he didn't know how much pain he was. Uh, put into the throws, but I I quit baseball within weeks of being on the team because I saw that I was going to be having my hand hurt and crouching that position. I hated that part of baseball, and also it's just coming at you every single time. Uh, and I was like, "Geez, this is not a fun. I'm like a target." <laughs> and so, with being in pain and not enjoying it all, I quit. And uh, I told my dad I was quitting, and he said something to me that jolted me. He says. I will never sign you up for another sport because you quit. And I'll tell you what, Sean, that had a very good effect on me and a very bad effect on me. And I say this because I know who the audience is. <clears throat> it had a good effect on me because I never did quit another thing. It had a bad effect on me because there are times you need to quit things. There's times that something's not going to make you happy and you have to quit. And there's times when you're, you're not making a profit or you're not uh, getting ahead in life or someone's just bad for you <clears throat> or the idea was bad. You just have to know it's not good for you anymore. You have to call it and quit. And, and it's an, an intelligent converse, uh, conversation with yourself. But I wanted to, um, I wanted to digress and say that, that that particular episode in my life caused me to uh, adopt a poem that if you put this poem in the book, it is a poem that has a purpose. And it's really kind of in the, the theme of uh, excuses are for losers. So when I taught science, for instance, I didn't accept excuses. I told them an excuse is just your way of explaining why you didn't get it done, and I'm not going to accept it. And I said anybody who is a winner in life doesn't use excuses to justify how they can't get things done. So I'm just going to take a second to read this. If you want to use it for the book, fine. If you don't, um, that's fine too, but it will help carve out uh, the last question and, and balance into the question you just asked me. So it's called The Bottom Line, and so it starts off with face it. Nobody owes you a living. What you achieve or fail to achieve in your lifetime is directly related to what you do or fail to do. No one chooses his parents or childhood, but you can choose your own direction. Everyone has problems and obstacles to overcome, but that too is relative to each individual. Nothing is carved in stone. You can change anything in your life if you want to badly enough. Excuses are for losers. Those who take responsibility for their actions are the real winners in life. Winners meet cha life's challenges head on, knowing there are no guarantees, and live it all the, with all they've got. It's never too late or too early to begin. Time plays no favorites and, and will pass whether you act or not. Take control of your life, dare to dream, and take risk. If you aren't willing to work for your goals, don't expect others to believe in yourself. Dude, I love it. So, yeah, that, and, and by the way, I, had, I, gave that, uh, I gave that on a piece of paper, uh, a copied paper, to every one of my students, and I had it hanging in my room because I wanted them to understand this is my philosophy and it got me where I am today. And, and when, I, when I entered the classroom as a teacher, by the way, I, I, didn't, I wasn't that teacher. And I, and I do say this, uh, being a, a bit judgmental and critical, I, I don't think you should go from high school to college to a classroom to teach. I think they should mandate that you have to live life for a minimum of two years, but preferably three or four years, where you actually do something that experiences life, whether it's opening up a business, going in the military, traveling abroad. Um, but when I was in the classroom, I had already uh, been a military officer. I had already seen the world. I had already been a business person. And I knew going in the classroom that that's what I wanted to bring experiences to my kids. And that's just a very important thing uh, for, 
for people listening to this that you want to experience life so that you can actually have a better global view of what your life can do to make the world better. From what you know now versus what you know when you started out in uh, after your high school or college years or what have you as a young adult, what advice would you give yourself today? You know, that's, that's a phenomenal question for a person who wants to really answer it with, when you answer that what you change, you're not who you are anymore. So uh, I carefully answer that question with, I would have put a lot more um, focus and learning on investing, and I would have taken a lot more care in making sure my team had strengths in accounting and law. And those things ended up haunting me. Um, but the reason I want to actually kind of slide back to the first part of the answer, which is you're not who you are anymore, is I have to confess, if I was a, a multi-millionaire, billionaire by the age of 30 or 40, which uh, when I was an entrepreneur at age 18, I was getting accounts that were coveted. I, I had an account at age 19 with the U.S. Naval Academy as the exclusive entertainment company for their their weddings, and same with the Fort Mean Officers Club. And to, to get those type of accounts, I, I can tell you, they're not gifted. You have to, you have to compete with hundreds of other uh, companies that are either crazy enough to put their bids in or the top three or four that obviously have more business experience than you. And I was able to get these, these accounts at an early age because I understood customer service. And I got that from a book I read called Raving Fans and another book called Swim with the Sharks. So uh, Harvey McKay with Swim with the Sharks was really teaching about the competitive edge you have to have in business, but Raving Fans was teaching me about the the focus on customer service being the number one focus you should have in business. So if I had changed anything towards legal or accounting or monetization or processes and systems, I may have been a multimillionaire. And what's to say that when I reach what I have to reach, I say, you know what, it's time to kick back in life. And when you kick back in life and you enjoy life, are you still creating impact in life? And that's, that's, a, that's a question I've actually asked myself only recently. If I had been a millionaire or billionaire, would I be as hungry as I am now to make the difference I, I'm making? Because God saw in me that I was going to make my strongest impact late in life. And I was still finding my way, and I was a competitive guy. And you, sometimes you have to let go of competition so you can be more into collaboration. And that, was, that, that wasn't like a rude awakening. I just found that I have a lot more fun than teams. Yeah, yeah. Doing things together is always, in my personal experience, doing things together is always so much better than doing it alone. Yeah, and, and you know, if I, if I, no, I'm so, going, uh, yeah. going back to going back to that investing, uh, the investing point that I said, I knew yes. Apple was going to be a front runner. I knew it was going to be. I, 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 and I have had multiple opportunities to invest, in, and I even wanted to liquidate everything I had and put it in Apple. And that's one of those things where I'm telling you that they have never proven to be the company that you shouldn't have invested in and long run or short run, I would have been uh, a lot better off in life had I taken those type of chances. Instead though, I decided to invest in myself. And you know, when you invest in yourself, you have to be careful with that because that's kind of an all eggs in, the, in one basket. So uh, I learned from Tony Robbins to manage money in three, uh, three splits. You have to have some money that's for savings. You have to have some money for investing in, what you want to do in life, and then you have to have a third of it that you are actually having fun with, that you're living life. And I did do that part pretty well. I mean, getting to over 100 countries, that was definitely investing. And when I saw an opportunity to have an adventure, experience life, I thought to myself, hey, when I'm 50, 60, which I don't ever know if I'll make at that age, um, <laughs> what, what's, what's to say What's to say that I, I can't walk at that point or I'm not on this earth to, and I have all this money that I didn't use to actually experience life. So I have balanced that part rather well. Awesome. And talking about uh, the investment, there's it doesn't have to be a monetary investment. It could be a time investment. Our greatest asset is time because it's finite. We're limited. Uh, every one of us are going to face that day where we're taken off the planet. I hope it's a lot later than sooner. Um, one of the, as far as one of the investments, I don't know if you've read this book. I, I'm probably sure you have, Ken. It's one of my favorite, favorite books, The Richest Man in Babylon. And it teaches oh, yeah. you yeah, are you familiar with that book? Of course. 
Okay, yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a parable book uh, about Nandini. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, one of the one of the greatest books about investment um, and how to. Uh, you talked about a, another key word is leverage and leverage in a positive sense, not in a, not in a negative sense that you're manipulating or you know conniving to get something, but you're doing it in a in a positive, cooperative, collaborative way. But uh, that is awesome, man. I, I appreciate all your your candidness and really just uh, you know sharing the the truth and the and the and the the heart the, the the good stuff and the bad stuff at the same time. Stan, that's that's really good. Now, Ken, I think all of us, even whether you're you know even even if you're not an entrepreneur, I think we all deal with this next question. I'm going to ask you: How do you deal with naysayers or people that are you know? not going, they don't catch your vision right away or, you know, they don't see it the way that you see it. How do you deal with the negativity and the naysayers in your life? Well, it, that is a part of what makes life so special. If everyone said yes, then nothing would be special. So I, I embrace naysayers because it means that I have something special. It also challenges me to make sure I'm, I'm clearly proving that I can change the world. If you have something that's going to change the world and you have 99% naysayers, you might not have an idea that's going to take off. And so you have to you have to look at that too. But if you believe that that's your calling, it doesn't matter if there's 99 out of 100 naysayers or even 100 out of 100 naysayers. I mean, if you look at Thomas Edison, I don't think anyone thought at even 100 tries, but obviously 1,000 tries of trying to figure out a light bulb, that he was going to do it. And he believed in himself. And there's scientists after scientists after science. Anything that is a new concept. How how could there be uh, people saying, "Yep, you're probably right," even though no one's ever heard of this before or seen it before, experienced it? Uh, so, if you're an innovator, you better be used to the fact that no one's going to actually understand what's in your head that you're going to innovate because it hasn't been it hasn't been experienced, tested, or or created. And uh, I want to go back for a second because it's important to me. Uh, if, if there's going to be an opportunity for you to segue this part in. But the word manipulate uh, is actually a very positive word. It's only negative when it's used in a negative way. So leverage, as you had pointed out, is uh, sometimes considered a negative word. I, I, I found it's rarely a negative word. I find it usually positive. But if you have an intention in life to be positive, actually any word you use would be with the intention of positivity. Correct. Uh, and so... I, I just would like to say words are very powerful, but uh, sometimes words are either one misused or the actions of that word is misused. And if you actually operate out of love and, and positive intention, there's rarely a word that wouldn't be used in your vocabulary that wouldn't be for that same intention. I love it, man. Great clarity on that. And I, I appreciate you uh, uh, injecting that. Um, so with negativity, back to that that question. To uh, so how so how do you how do you overcome it? You just uh, um, okay. So how you overcome it is you you have to, you have to have your voice uh, and your why for your calling to actually be harmonized. That it's it's your program, it's your template in your brain. So when you say you're going to accomplish something, if you're going to dig in for like 90 days, you're going to see a pattern of whether you, what was in your mind and what was in your heart is actually going to become reality. And, and I usually do things for a year, so I don't, I don't, do, light, uh, I don't do light hypotheses or light uh, tests for data. I, I usually go a year. Uh, the Umbrella Syndicate, when I started it, I took one whole year just to talk to someone about it. And I, I know how long you've been doing your vision board and how long you've been uh, at this because when we met three years ago, this was in your mind. And so I'm excited because I'm part of this three years later, but I also know how committed you are and I know it's going to happen. So with the Umbrella Syndicate, I talked about this hybrid PR company that yeah. has six components to it that had photography, publishing, all this. And everyone's like, how can you put that stuff together or why are you doing this? For me, it's very clear. It was very clear that if you put these things together, you actually have a powerhouse of, of weapons. And again, intention. Weapons can be for good. And they're, and they're tools. So I was looking at all these things together would cause viral campaigns. All these things together would cause speed of relevance. All these things together would cause amplification of positive messages, positive people, and positive events. And I, so I took one whole year just to talk about it. 
And I also said, if I can't talk about this for a year, how can I talk about it any longer? How can I do the business for longer than a year? So I decided one whole year I'd meet with someone who was an IT guy, tech guy, and I just, we had breakfast every single day, five days a week, and it was just the commitment of a conversation. And I said, if you can last a year in this conversation with me, then we're pulling the trigger and we're gonna go ahead and open this business. Then for one whole year, I told him we couldn't make any money. Now, I thought I'd made that clear to him in the year we were talking, but that did not land as clear months after we started the business because people were talking about our business very quickly and they were excited about it, but I said, we're not accepting money in this business for the first year because of the hybrid. I gotta figure out how this hybrid works in the world and how it's gonna have the highest impact, then we can monetize it. So I did 330 events, Sean, absolutely for free, and I chose the event. They had to be an event where I was moved or inspired. It was normally a nonprofit, it was normally a, a cause or a movement, or it was a, specifically a leader bringing good people together. And you know, if I tell you, Sean, I'm gonna come to your event, and I'm gonna help amplify you, and by the way, can you give me $500? There's a pushback. Because I'm not coming actually to your event because I believe in you. I'm coming to your event to sell you something or I'm coming to your event to get something from you. And so I, I told my partner, I said, hey, Mike, we have a great thing here, but we can't sell it yet until we know the value of it. And I know it's valuable. I just don't know how to articulate it yet. So for a year, I got all this data. And there was one thing that I knew is it was exciting. It was valuable. But even at the end of the year, I didn't know what it was worth. So we just started monetizing it with stipends. I mean, this is a very arduous and <laughs> almost a crazy way to do a business, but you see the foundation of this business. It's, it's solid. It, yeah. it had the time, and it had the, uh, it had the thought, and it had the determination, as you put it. Love it. Awesome. Now, Ken, when, obviously, when you were going through and testing this hybrid to you know, prove the model, make sure it was valuable, and you weren't charging anybody anything, that's, that's kind of a scary thing going into business and not charging anybody for it. <laughs> um, so, and I think we all deal with this, the fear of the unknown or not too sure how something's gonna turn out. So when you are, when you're scared of doing something, I think I know the answer that you're gonna give to this, but I'm real curious to find out what your, you know, your answer is. When you're scared about doing something or you're not too sure how it's gonna turn it, like how do you overcome that fear? What do you, what do, you do? So that is, a, that is a question that lands differently for different people, obviously. So when you are on a calling from God, that question doesn't apply. And it just doesn't apply because you're not in fear. You're actually in your comfort zone that you're living a life that you love and a life that will make a difference and, and you're happy. And I do 15-hour, 18-hour days, but they don't appear that way to me. They actually appear like, ah, the day's over. Ah, yeah. I wish I could have gotten this done. Or, ah, this is the first thing I got to do tomorrow. So uh, it wasn't scary for me. And uh, it doesn't mean I didn't have conversations with God. It doesn't mean that there wasn't deliberation at times, like, how do I do this better? But there's never been, this is a bad idea, because I saw what an impact it made. I will tell you this to be fair. I didn't work for free for two years. I pursued my calling for two years and I had another income stream that allowed me to pursue it. So I'm not telling uh, your audience or stating in the book that I had no backup plan or I didn't, or I was just whimsically going for my calling. I found that my calling was where I wanted all my energy and fortunately I had had some other entrepreneur endeavors that allowed me to uh, springboard from a couple businesses into this. And also, remember I said it was a hybrid. I had some verticals in those uh, six businesses that uh, some of them were really good cash cows and the other ones were just still in the, in the building phase. But I was utilizing those monies to invest in my bills so that I could sustain myself to continue to get data. And, and so I, this was, yes, it was somewhat crazy, but it was also tempered with the balance of some financial responsibility. Now in the end, I burned out my other businesses because I had misjudged, uh, and that's a big problem with businesses, is you misjudge how much money you need. And so I thought, really honestly, within a year I'd figure out the monetization, and I didn't really figure that out until almost three years into the business. And uh, if you're selling pizzas, you're gonna learn the monetization of pizzas probably before you start the business, but if you don't, you'll learn it pretty quickly before you go out of business, because <laughs> you will go out of business if you don't understand the monetization of, business, of pizza. So every business that is a copycat, 
there is someone that you can look at how they did it right and just copy them and mentor and get them as a mentor. They typically won't mind being your mentor as long as you're not in their exact geographic space or in their, uh, their, their actual niche of that industry. But when you create something brand new as a hybrid, uh, or not a hybrid, just brand new, you're, uh, you're going to have to spend time learning what you even have before you can articulate what the monetization plan is. And it, that's really good and it's really bad at the same time because you can create it and then figure out the monetization plan. Someone sees it and just copies it and you invested maybe a quarter million dollars in time and money into something and you watch someone else take off, whether it's you know a Google or whoever. So you have to really look at when you're doing this from a naysayer or believing in it standpoint is are you going to do this regardless? And my answer was yes, regardless. It didn't matter. No one could put more energy into this than me. And so, and I was also went into this with the idea that I'm the crazy one doing this. I will accept 49 <laughs> other, I will accept 49 other crazy people to do this with me. So I was, I, I built a, I built a business model that would allow for 50 uh, leaders, authors, uh, not lead, I'm sorry, not authors, leaders, entrepreneurs to be a part of the Umbrella Syndicate, which was the, it, the syndicate had two meanings to it. One meaning was the syndicate of owners of the company. So I, I haven't found too many owners that want to stick it out and, and be, be the, the sacrifice or the, uh, the, the determination or persistence that I've been, and that's okay. But this is an open, this is an open company to the right people. Uh, it, it's someone that does want to make an impact in the world. It's someone that money is not the first driving force. And, and, and that's probably the best way to describe the kind of owner I'm looking for. And sure. so th that, part, that part's really cool. And, and that's also a reason why my company could, be, uh, could grow is because it didn't have to be me. It could be a lot of people. And you just have to be careful which people you bring in because they represent your brand, they represent you, and they represent the integrity of the company. Absolutely. Yeah, you will be and become like the people you position yourself around. Firmly believe in that. Now, Ken, I'm yeah, I actually heard I heard a quote recently, Sean. If I may add it, it's, it's I don't sure. curse very often, but if I can, I say one curse word because it's part of the quote. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, one of my favorite quotes recently is because quotes apply when uh, there's an opening in your life that actually is a problem, and, and you find that quote and it inspires you to actually find the solution. So uh, Sir Richard Branson has a quote: "I'd rather have a hole in my company than an asshole." And Got it. that's that is really profound. I mean, I know it's it's uh, it, 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 it's raw, but you think about that and you apply that to your business. You won't let a jerk in your business. You won't let someone negative in your business. You won't let anyone in your business that is not complementing with your ideology, your team needs. And and you know, one bad apple spoils a whole bunch. So that really is what that's saying. And I have seen it. I've seen it. In, I've seen it in my own company. You bring someone in, they're all talent, or they're all this, or all that, but they have the wrong attitude, or they have the wrong integrity. You just you just threw away a, a portion of your company, or a portion of the time you built your company. Absolutely, one hundred percent agree. I was going to actually, you had already just mentioned it, but you know, one bad apple can spoil the bunch. Right. So, and, and it's and yeah. it's because it's because of the it's because of uh, force, and it's because of consistency. So if you have someone with a bad attitude and you have someone with a good attitude, let's say the one with the bad attitude has a stronger force, they will cause the bad attitude to reign. Now, you can bring in a project, a person who needs an, an attitude adjustment, and if you are a force for uh, their good, their success, and it's out of love, you can, you can change that. I do believe that. So I'm not saying don't hire someone with a bad attitude or don't hire someone, but they have to have a core beliefs in integrity. They have to have core beliefs in being hungry to make a difference. Yes. I like to call it, uh, there's three ingredients. It doesn't really matter to me if the person has money, clout, prestige, whatever. Um, and I know how important, and you, we said this in your bio, creating social proof through uh, events and other people that, that you know, basically affirm that your service, your product is a good product or a service, whatever it might be, whatever the industry is, doesn't matter. But if you don't, uh, if what I have found in my all the businesses that I've been involved in and have invested my time in, um, if the core values, integrity, and beliefs aren't in alignment at the top, it's destined to fail. Exactly. Yep. And you know, there's another point to this as far as uh, really hitting home 
with what you said about clout and uh, experience, etc., is and, and going to that social proof pieces. I would have brides because I was in the wedding market for I still am actually 32 years, and some brides are it's common for a bride to ask a question like how much is it, and there's another common question that's asked, which is how long have they been working with you or how long have they been a DJ? And I found that question, both of them are actually useless questions, but the, the second question is almost more useless, and that is if I tell you that the guy has been working with me for 30 years and I'm a, um, a, the leader of a company with no integrity, does it really matter how long he's been working with me? And, and then if he's, if he's been working in the DJ world for 15 years and I just hired him for six months, and he's, he's turning out not to be a good fit for my company, would I rather send out a guy who's been with my company for six months who's hitting out of the ballpark? Like, it's amazing, but if you care about people and you care about your word and you care about their experience, I would rather have that person, even if they had one day on the job, one day on the job versus someone that's been there 20 years and has a bad attitude. There's just not even a comparison. I love it. So it's not based on seniority, in other words, Ken. Well, and, and by the way, apples to apples, if you have someone with a phenomenal attitude, has customer uh, love for customer raving, creating raving fans, and you got 20 years versus one day or one year, I'll take the guy with 20 because he's going to have all kinds of other solutions and all kinds of other value pieces that he can bring to the table. But my, my point is that just the, the seniority by itself is not necessarily saying what you're getting. Right. That's, that's what I meant. That's what I was trying to, yeah. uh, the point I was trying to make. Yeah. And, and, and I totally get that. It was the point. I just wanted to drive the, uh, the the roundabout of all the examples. Awesome. Got it. Now, can we all go through this? Because there's, you know, you got five hundred thousand dollar companies, you got ten million dollar companies, you got fifty million dollar companies, and the scale goes all the way up to billion dollar companies. And all that means is just different levels, right? Different levels of development, different levels of how much your volume you're getting your products and services into the marketplace. So at we all, what I like to call, we hit the wall or we hit the plateau, or we hit the stumbling block. What do you do to overcome that wall? How do you get past it? How do you overcome the plateau? How do you go to the next level? Well, I think the first person, uh, the first thing you have to do is admit that you don't have the answer. Because if you're plateauing, you probably are going to get stuck there as long as you're going to believe that the way you're doing it is the way it's going to get you to another level. So uh, you just have to have a, a conversation with yourself. I don't have all the answers. And I love to ask questions like, how could I do this better? Who would know how to do this better? And those questions get my subconscious working and my conscious working on, you know, putting it out in the universe and, and, and having God give me that answer, putting that person in my life. And it's funny, you might know someone for seven years and you ask that question, they show up the next day and you say, man, I'm really having a, um, some deliberation about this. And that person may not, it's funny, that person may not even be the, the solution, but they may say, you know what, I just ran into so-and-so and, -so, and they, they're an expert in this area. So uh, I think really putting out in the universe that you're plateauing and you want to you wanna take it to the next level and you're committed to taking it to the next level and uh, please show me who and what I should do. And, and then it, all of a sudden the answers come to you. It's, it's really crazy. And it, it's always happened for me. I love it. Now, in business, sales are very important. And I've heard this saying. Oh, can, I, can I say one more thing? Can I say one more thing? Sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a word that uh, is very, like we used the word leverage in the earlier part of the conversation. I think the word yeah. in this particular part of the conversation is the word surrender. You have to surrender that you don't have all the answers. You have to surrender that what you've been doing is not going to take you where you want to go. And when you're able to do that in, a, in an authentic way, then there's a space, an open space for a new way and a new, and a new uh, thought process and a new success uh, experience. Absolutely. 100% agree. Now, Ken, I know with business, obviously, um, you know, sales are very important. Sales, uh, sales cure a lot of things. What would you say is the most valuable lesson about sales that you've learned in your business that you could share? If you approach sales that you are solving the customer's problem, and from a social proof standpoint, which I've, I've found is the culminating success of sales, is that if you can prove that you've solved a lot of other people's problems and you have testimonials and endorsements, then you have the easiest sales process because you're a problem solver and they're just paying you to solve the problem. And by the way, money will not be 
necessarily the, 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 the first decision. It'll be more about you solving a problem that's costing them money or you're going to solve a problem that's going to make them a lot of money. But if you can't address those two things or at least uh, make their liability lower, then your sales are probably going to be a challenge. And uh, I look at sales as if you see it's a dirty word, then you're not doing customer service. If you're looking at it as you're not going to have a long-term relationship, then you're not you're not using the word the way it really is meant to be. The word sales is a very beautiful word when you consider it. You are you are solving a problem for a customer. You're solving a, a problem for a fellow human being that when you solve that problem, they don't only give you the money, but they say, I'd like to endorse you and I'd like to find I'd like to refer you to other people that you can solve their problem to. Beautiful. Love it. Now, Ken, we've, you've probably, you, you've already shared, I think, a piece of this question. I'm going to ask the question anyway. Um, will you, can you describe a situation where, uh, talking about problems, right, because mm -hmm. we, we, we face, and I don't, I don't like to use the word problems. I like the word, I like to use the word challenges and issues. Um, so mm -hmm. when we face challenges and issues, or we, we do face a problem, um, where did mentorship or personal development play a critical role in helping you overcome or solve that problem? Well, that's, uh, that would be just my commitment to constantly wanting to learn. And Tony Robbins was definitely one of the uh, people I, I learned uh, in that space that everything is achievable and to really bust through your fears and bust through your obstacles. And, by the way, the, the biggest compliment you can probably be given in the world is that you are a problem solver. So uh, the word problem is a negative word, but if you're a problem solver, you're actually removing negative things from the world. So uh, you become very valuable in any organization if you go into the interview and you say, uh, what is your biggest asset? And you say, I solve problems. I'm gifted in the area. If there's a problem, I am, I'm creative and innovative enough to come with a solution that I know how to execute. And you you have a gold ticket right there. You have Love their it. attention and, and you have job security. <laughs> You're, you are the guy people go to when you're a problem solver. So a challenge solver is is not really the way you'd put it, is it? But challenges is a great way to possibly use the thesaurus to say this isn't really a problem, this is just a challenge I have to overcome. So I do agree with the word replacement, but if the word is actually a nasty word and you're a solver of that nasty word, then it's actually okay to say I'm a problem solver. I pride myself in, in solving Absolutely. problems for the world. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I concur. Love it, man. Um, now, this is a and fun thank you question. For using, thank you for using the word concur. I concur, brother. I love it. Now, Ken, this is, this is one of my favorite questions that I love to ask uh, people like yourself as a you know, person that has proven successful, loves people, uh, loves making an impact and a difference in the lives of others. What are you most excited about next in your life and business, Ken? I'm excited about the the concept uh, and the responsibility you have when you say you're a millionaire or you're a billionaire. And I say that from a standpoint that I honestly never believed that I could have a million or a billion in the bank. And when you don't believe it, you'll prove that you can't. And that is definitely a Henry Ford uh, quote that's worth bringing up at this point is whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. So it's, it's very important that when you believe in something, that you believe with all your heart, all your actions, because then you actually prove it to be true. And, if you, for instance, just as simple as I think I'm having a bad day today, this is going to be a horrible day, and I'll probably have an accident. And what did you just put in the universe that's going to help you prove it? Like you're going to get distracted. You're not going to pay attention. You're going to you're going to lose your wallet or something. And you go, I knew it. I knew it. And it's all that you you actually create that belief system. So uh, the the answer to your question is you really have to be committed to the, what you believe in, and then that way you'll prove it right. Awesome. So you're excited, like about like in your business and like what so, what are you what are you most excited what I'm excited about. about what I'm excited about is that I don't know all the answers and I'm attracting people that are on my team, that are systems people, they're processes people, they're uh, Infusionsoft people, they're sales funnel people. They're all the things that a year or two ago I was in the shifting of my mental of 
what I'm doing with my business is not incorporating technology and automation, even though I want it. And you can't have a scalable business without automation. You can't have a, a scalable business without um, talented people that can modify that, that automation to meet the needs of people uh, that are uh, that are learning about new ways to do business with you. And uh, Amazon is a perfect example of this. I, I cannot believe that I can actually run out of shaving cream and consider going to my Amazon account and buying it and just get it at my UPS store three days later than leave my house and, and go get some shaving cream. And that's, that's, that is absolutely mind-boggling to me that he thought it. And, and they have actually got the click buttons. And, so he's, he is truly an innovator and uh, the perfect example of someone that's using automation for scalability. All right, we got a, a, a couple more questions here, Ken, and that will wrap up our time together. And I so, so appreciate you, man, and investing your time into uh, this book and the Young Eagle Entrepreneur Program. I appreciate you, bro. Um, now, I know you're, you're an author. You love books. You promote books and authors and thought leaders. If you could recommend one book that had a significant impact, not only on you personally, but professionally, and if it's more than one book, that, that, that's cool. Uh, what is the title of the book, and who's the author? Well, I had, I had mentioned The E-Myth, uh, and that's by Michael Gerber. And yep. uh, another book would be The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. Burger. And that that and that is a, a book about instead of getting from life, you give to life, and you give to networking opportunities, and you give to relationships to to start them. But I would like to answer a, a second part of that question that may not have been really asked in this way. Is I think it's important that if you choose to be a leader in life, that you choose to leave a legacy in life, and if you're going to choose to leave a legacy in life, that you download your brain and your heart into a book. And it's so important that if, if you don't know when you're leaving this planet, that you leave a legacy early on so that there's no problem with actually checking that off, that when you leave, you're still here. And I, I want to say that we had talked earlier about like how to live life. And I think it's really important you live life like it's your last year and you'll, you'll accomplish more than you've ever accomplished in, in any previous year. And you have to reset that each year. You say this is my last year. What am I gonna? What am I gonna leave on this planet that actually will be a game changer for people that are that come into my work or come into my my message? And so, it's most people say they want to write a book. By the way, Sean, eighty-five percent of professionals want to write a book. Yeah. Only one percent actually do it. Only one yeah. percent. And yeah. the problem with it is that they don't know how to approach it. And the other problem with it is it has to be perfect and it's never finished. And if you look at life, life is never finished. Uh, work is never finished. Your, yeah. your upbringing of your child is never finished. So the best approach you can have to actually getting a book out is pick a deadline. And regardless of whether your project is finished, you have to, you have to publish. Wow. You've got to publish. You've got to publish. And Sharon, is, is Sean a great interviewer? He, he deserves his own show. Indeed. He goes deep, and he brings out the treasures uh, from your soul, I think. You've said so much. I know our listeners will want to go back and replay this over and over, because I was taking notes again, and I've, you know, I've listened to this interview before, and so many great nuggets were dropped. I believe it's already changed my life in, in the way I think and process, and I know that's good and evident for folks listening in, too. How, we, how are you feeling listening to it yourself? Well, I, I had a lot of breakthroughs and think that the Power of Conversation book is going to be the, the result of actually my way of thanking Sean for this. And I'd like to spin the dial. And next week, I'd like to go deep and ans ask you a lot of questions and basically borrow some of the questions that Sean asked me to get to know my new co-host because I hope at the end of next week's show that you are going to be my partner my sister, for amplifying the leaders and great messages in the world so we can cause disruption and cause a better world. Say please, please, please. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next week, Sharon, and you're going to be the spotlight next week, and that'll be awesome. All right, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. We 
We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Amplified. Be sure to join Ken Rashan again next Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, go get your message heard.